Okay, we're going to kick off episode 398 of Monster Kid Radio with the song Kebab of Love. It comes from the new EP release from the band Los Ultraman. They're a really cool surf band based out of Canelones, Uruguay. And they gave us permission to play their song here on this podcast devoted to the classic and sometimes not so classic genre cinema of yesteryear, Monster Kid Radio. I am Derek M. Cook. Welcome to the show. I'll make sure there's a link to Los Ultraman's Bandcamp page in the show notes, which you can check out after you're done listening to this episode, which is the first week of our December event here on the podcast, Dan Sember. All month long, we're going to be talking about movies or projects from Dan Curtis. This is a guy who is responsible for so much cool monster kid stuff in the 70s and the 80s. And we're going to talk about Dan Curtis and his productions here on the show. I'm really excited about it because we're going to kick things off with Dan Curtis and then another thing that starts with the letter D that's very important to Monster Kids, Dracula. That's right, Dan Curtis directed a version of Dracula starring Jack Palance. Or is it Jack Palance? I can never remember. Anyway, that's what we're going to be talking about here on this week's episode of Monster Kid Radio with special guest Stephen D. Sullivan. Steve and I are going to break down the film, talk a little bit about the movie, and talk about our impressions of the film and tell you why you need to see it. Of course, before that... Kenny is here with his famous Monsters of Filmland segment, where he tells us about how Dan Curtis's Dracula, which was originally called Bram Stoker's Dracula, was represented in the iconic famous Monsters of Filmland magazine. Why don't we go ahead and get into that right after this. centuries comes this exciting story of a modern girl cursed by an ancient legend, the legend of the cat people, women whose kiss means death, whose love turns them into vicious, snarling beasts of prey. Twice I've been followed by something that was not human, something that attempted to take my life. I believe that was the cat form of Irena. Why should she wish to harm you? Because I'm in love with her husband. It's shut, Belle. Just a minute ago, it was open. Clark. Leave us, Irena. I am Dr. Lee Cushing. Welcome to my Chamber of Horrors. Dr. Cushing's Chamber of Horrors is a serialized monster rally novel in the tradition of the classic Universal and Hammer horror films. It's written by Stephen D. Sullivan, the award-winning author of White Zombie, Daikaiju Attack, Manos, The Hands of Fate, and the original chill role-playing game. My goal is to recreate the thrills of the monster versus monster films that we all love. We'll have vampires, werewolves, mummies, psychic twins, and scheming madmen. And that's just in the first storyline. Now you can get Dr. Cushing's Chamber of Horrors and other monster stories sent directly to your email for as little as a dollar a month. For just two dollars, you'll get all the chapters in advance, plus bonus stories and other perks. 
Sign up now at CushingHorrors.com or visit SDSullivan.com for a Patreon link. I do hope you've enjoyed your visit. Please come again. And remember, the chamber is always waiting for its next victim. Come face to face with your fears. Come face to face with tales that witness madness. Tiger, tiger, burning bright in the forests of the night. I love that one. You've tried everything you know how to keep them to yourself, but you still haven't made it, have you? You're threatened by a tiger. Come face to face with terror beyond your wildest nightmares. Enter an asylum from which you may never escape. Leave all your sanity behind. It can't help you now. Mamalu. Somebody get the fire brigade! Can destroy it. I will destroy it. And you. Now do you believe it? Thank God you've seen it. It has to be seen to be believed. Tales that witness madness. It's enough to drive you out of your mind to your grave. Hello, Monster Kid Radioheads. This is Kenny with a look at Famous Monsters of Filmland. We are starting Dan Simber with a look at the Dan Curtis TV movie Dracula with Jack Palance. This film was featured in Famous Monsters 106 from April of 1974, which had the hideous sun demon on its cover. The Dan Curtis film had been previewed for the Los Angeles Count Dracula Society in the fall of 1973. It was scheduled to be run on TV October of that same year, but was preempted by Nixon's announcement of Vice President Spiro Agnew's resignation. It was moved for the TV audience to February of 1974. This fact was mentioned in the article, then a brief critique of the film which included these comments. The new Dracula has an inspired beginning, as a midnight pack of children of the night race howling from a nearby forest into the forecourt of Count Dracula's estate. As FM's photographer Walt Doherty commented afterward, We can forgive that they were police dogs rather than wolves. The scene was so well conceived and executed. Muchly missed by me, at any rate, was the character Renfield, but then, there was only one Dwight Fry, the original fly swatter. Also, it was admittedly a bit of a shock to see young Winston, Simon Ward, mixed up with vampires. Although perhaps it shouldn't have been, wasn't it Churchill, the great leader of the beleaguered little island of England, who, during World War II, declared, The sun never sets on the British vampire? But momentary, levity aside, once outside the preview hall, the press of humanity was thick around Richard Matheson, as each viewer in turn attempted to shake his hand and congratulate him on a marvelous presentation. It was at once evident that this would have to be a top contender for a Radcliffe Award from the Count Dracula Society. One thing for sure, 
I'll never forget that ending. I don't think you will either. What else was happening in the spring of 1974? FM 106 featured articles about the anthology film Tales That Witness Madness and the latest Harryhausen masterpiece, Golden Voyage of Sinbad. There was also preview articles for Hammer's Vampire Circus and another telefilm, The Phantom of Lot 2, which was later retitled The Phantom of Hollywood. There is an unusual feature on John Agar. I'll tell you more about next time he is featured on Monster Kid Radio. And an obituary for the legendary B-movie producer Sam Katzman. FM 106 also featured an extensive look at witches, warlocks, and devil worshippers in the movies, which was a reprint from FM 67. I was at the height of my monster kingdom and saw Dracula on its original airing, and it scared the heck out of me. FM 106 was a special treat for this then nine-year-old, as it previewed one of my favorites, Golden Voyage of Sinbad. I am Dracula, and I bid you welcome to the podcast devoted to the classic, and sometimes not so classic, genre cinema of yesteryear. And I offer you this warning. Sometimes Derek and his guests get excited, and they may spoil a movie or two. You know how excited Monster Kids can get sometimes. If Monster Kid Radio spoils a movie for you, do not come whining to me. I cannot stand whines. Listeners, I was going to have Steve Sullivan on the show to talk about Dracula by Dan Curtis, but we have to bump it because we have a special announcement from the president. He's got to talk to us about Spiro Agnew and that sort of thing. (laughs) So come... Anyway, uh, Steve Sullivan, welcome to Monster Kid Radio. You know, I, I watched the broadcast of that when it happened. I Was it actually bumped from its time slot initially? That's what the trivia page on the IMDb and Wikipedia says. And you know the internet's never wrong. The internet is never wrong. But, you know, <laughs> it's uh, maybe it's weird. Maybe it's just me. But I remember watching Dracula, but I don't remember having to endure Spiro Agnew. <laughs> Before Dracula. <laughs> yeah, supposedly it got bumped because of the announcement that uh, Nixon was going to come on and say Spiro Agnew was resigning or something. Right. I don't yep. know. Yeah, well, uh, and that was a good thing, but I don't remember it happening, and it certainly didn't mar my enjoyment of Dracula whenever I actually did see it in its premiere on television. So we're talking about Dracula, which was a TV movie. Uh, I don't think it ever had a theatrical run. Uh, well, in Europe it did. Overseas it probably did. Also known as Dan Curtis Dracula or, uh, I think officially, Bram Stoker. Dracula. It was originally Bram Stoker's Dracula, but when Coppola did his film in 92, that studio secured the rights to the title Bram Stoker's Dracula, and ever since, this version has been called Dan Curtis's Dracula to avoid confusion. And that makes sense to me. And I don't know. I like this one better than the Coppola version, but you know. I was just going to say that. I think I actually like this film better than the Coppola. It's not, I don't hate the Coppola version by any means, but this one, it's got a lot going for it. I'm going to set a record here by talking about film scores so early in the show. Bram Stoker's oh. Dracula has a beautiful film score. Boom. Okay. Yes. <laughs> Boom. <laughs> It does, and I noticed that that coming in by Robert Cobert, who is the guy that wrote the score for Dark Shadows. Not surprisingly, yeah. Dan Kurtz and Robert Cobert. I think Cobert may have done almost all of his productions, maybe even up through the Winds of War and that kind of stuff. But they were they were joined at the hip, and and rightly so, because you know under the strictures of TV 
scoring and stuff. He was just fabulous. Well, you know? okay, and, let's be fair, though. I mean, I love my Dark Shadows, and I have that four-disc set of the Doors of Six, whatever, that multi-disc set of Dark Shadows mm-hmm. soundtrack. Let's be fair. The Blue Whale only had two songs on his jukebox, um, <laughs> <laughs> you know, and a lot of the music is just, <laughs> right, which is awesome. I love it. I'd make it yep. my ringtone if I could figure out how to set custom ringtones again on my phone since the last <laughs> update. I can't. Um, That's a great idea. But... Now, a lot of the music is the same, you know, stock library stuff just cut a little differently, which I respect as somebody who cuts music differently for various projects, but come on. <laughs> right. Well, if you want to get the, a better experience with that rather than the insanely cool, and I have it too, and just gave a copy to one of my brothers, the complete Dark Shadows Q collection. Mm-hmm. That's what I'm talking about. They did about. put out four different albums, including the original album that was... Uh, Back when it was, there was no such thing as CDs, but with LPs and the the four albums do mix the cues up and kind of give you a better sense of how they worked in the show than hearing Night at Collinwood one, two, three, four, five, <laughs> six, seven, up through infinity uh, and beyond, um, all in order, which is on that that box set, which is a great thing to have. Though. But he did do a lot of the Dan Curtis productions, uh, right. Dark Shadows, The Strange Case of Doctor Jekyll and Mister Hyde, House of Dark Shadows, Night of Dark Shadows, Night Stalker, Night Strangler, all of these things that he he did have his hands in. Uh, of the Wolf, uh, he yep. did as well, and uh, you know the Norlis tapes. I mean, all this incredible stuff that Dan Curtis was involved with. Yeah, and uh, and I totally get it. There, if you've got a guy that that's that's that good, mm-hmm. why go with anyone else? That's like uh, John Williams scoring the music for all these Ivan Tours and 20th Century Fox shows, right? Mm-hmm. That, that it was like, okay, we've got John Williams. Want him to do Lost in Space? want him to do Lands of the Giants, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. When you got someone that's really good at it, stick with that guy, stick with that woman, you know, sure. stick with the one that dance with the one that brung you, as they say. Yep. So no. And I, I noticed that when I was watching this last night, that was one of the first things I was like, wow, I bet this is him again. And it, you know, I thought it probably was, but it was like, th- these are cues that I've never, I haven't heard in years and years and years. Cause I haven't watched Dracula recently. And then I thought I need to get the score. I need to get the soundtrack to that. I think I've got it. So I'll let you know where I got it and we'll go from there. Cool. Yeah. Unless it's on the Night Stalker, Night Strangler disc, I probably don't. He actually did the um, revival of Dark Shadows, which I suppose sometime we'll talk about too. It's not as good as the original, but he did the music for that too. But it was mostly based on his original one. Sure. Weirdly, when I ordered, a co- finally found a copy of that on eBay and ordered it for myself. So I, Dark Shadows, right? I need to have it. I got it and it was, it's signed. It's autographed. Nice. <laughs> and I paid like a bargain based price for it. I don't think I paid, I paid less than $10 for it shipped. I think it was like, Oh my God, <laughs> this is signed in gold belted marker on the front by the composer. Wow. <laughs> right on, right on. That's cool, man. Yeah. It, anyway, great score for Dracula. Mm-hmm. Really interesting in the way, like, with Hitchcock, Hitchcock would leave scenes silent. Dan Curtis working on this, there are scenes that have quite a bit of music, and then there's scenes where it's really quiet to kind of build the suspense mm-hmm. and kind of 
suck you in and draw you closer to the, the screen and the action that's going on. And and again, you know, good choices by the director, good choices by the composer there. Definitely. Now, you said a second ago uh, you didn't realize or you noticed that he was uh, the, the musician, the composer involved with this when you watched this. Uh, it hasn't been a long time since you saw the movie before prepping for the show? It's probably three or four years, I guess. Well, I've got you beat because I haven't watched this in a long time. The last time I watched it was a VHS copy of the Elvira-hosted version of oh this. Oh, my. And, uh, I didn't even know that existed. I mean, I've got it on disc. It's been in my collection for years. I just have never sat down to watch it. It's just one of those things like, uh, you know, I liked it. I'll, I'll buy it and then just never watched it. Um, so, yeah, she hosted it uh, years ago. And the one of the video stores I worked at over the years had it on the shelf. And I took it home and watched it. And I don't remember thinking it was all that great because... Come on, man. Jack Palance is Dracula? No. But when I go back and watch it now, I think he did a pretty good job. I kind of like him as Dracula. The teeth look a little funny on him, I think. Just to, if I had any criticism, I think that the teeth don't fit him quite as well as they did Jonathan Frid or, you know, or Christopher Lee. Or even Xander Vorkov. <laughs> Maybe even him. The, so the teeth don't look quite right in some kind of weird way but that's a tiny criticism in the fact that he is like christopher lee palance was a powerful man oh yeah he was large of stature larger presence large on the screen and as the lord of the vampires he's imposing and really interesting to watch especially since this is dracula that has a love story involved we should point out probably right off that parts of this are really fairly faithful to the dracula novel in fact, a lot of it is, but it doesn't have a lot of the sub characters. It doesn't have Renfield. It doesn't have all the suitors that were vying for the attention of the two women. And it does take liberties with the rest, but in some ways it's a far more faithful adaptation of Dracula than Dracula or horror of Dracula. Well, you know, that said though, a lot of it does feel like they took a lot of cues from horror of Dracula though. As well, don't you think? In some ways, yeah. yeah. In some ways. In terms of which characters die and by what hands, that sort of thing. It's not, right. You know, that's okay. I'm not saying it's a bad thing. No, no. I mean, it, it does show its influences. It's clear that, that uh, Dan Curtis and, and uh, the writer Richard Matheson, the great Richard Matheson. Right. If we can tell you that Dan Curtis directed this and Richard Matheson wrote it and Robert Colbert did the music and you don't want to see it, Turn in your Monster Kid card right now. Babe. Oh, come on. Come on. There, there's no run right. Yeah, none of this true fan stuff. Come on. Oh, you're right. You're right. You're right. Come you're right. on. <laughs> but you should want to see it just based on those names alone. Yeah. It, it's it's really solid. Uh, the production design is lush and has the gothicness that Hammer brought to the table. Just Shot largely on location, I think. In, right. In actual old castles and buildings mm-hmm. and out in the countryside and stuff. Mm-hmm. Obviously, you know, when... Dan Curtis was freed from the soap opera set of Dark Shadows. Did we mention, we didn't mention this, we were talking about Dark Shadows earlier and off mic, but I don't think we mentioned that Dan Curtis, the director of this, is the creator of Dark Shadows, the classic vampire gothic. Dan Simber. Yeah, it's come up. Right. Sure. (laughs) People... Now, now we're not going to shame anyone that didn't put that together, though. (laughs) (laughs) I'm saying I probably would have already mentioned it by now in the show somewhere. (laughs) Well, yeah, maybe. Maybe you might have. But it's it's worth. So when he's freed from the small set 
soap opera. It was like, hey, I can go into the countryside. I can use film. <laughs> I can get a real castle. I can get a real interior of a, an old house and that kind of stuff. So, so it's really cool in that way. In that it's it's like it has a uh, a sense of reality, a sense of really being in a place that a lot of times even Hammer and some of those really well-produced films don't because most of this is found locations, poster, maybe even all of it. Uh, Yugoslavia is where they shot a lot of the exteriors and they shot a lot of the uh, interiors in England. Um, but right. a lot of the exteriors, especially with the castles and that sort of thing, was Yugoslavia, which, right. I mean, gives it this overwhelming sense of, of reality and verisimilitude. It's just amazing right. to, to look at some of these locations that didn't get exploited by Universal or Hammer or anybody else. Right, yeah, no, and that's that's just wild to me. The only time you see this kind of stuff is in, in a lot of Euro horror, especially Spanish horror, Italian horror, where it's like it's, the people are wandering around this ruined castle, and you're like, God bless, that's a ruined castle. <laughs> right, or even Monty Python and the Holy Grail shot in a real ruined castle. Come on. Yes, I mean, yes. Come on. exactly. Exactly, which is something Universal and even Hammerton tend to do at all. So to have that turn up in an American television release, that's awesome. Yeah, it gives a lot of... Um, a lot of extra, I think, perceived value, whether whether people realized it or not, it makes it makes it all seem kind of extra real and extra yes. cool. Yes, So this is kind of a hybrid story. Uh, Bram Stoker's Dracula, the novel, a little bit of Hammer's influence, perhaps, and then a whole lot of Richard Matheson just running wild with the Dracula story, but still keeping the things that are important to the Dracula story. Right. And some things that would later become important to the Dracula story. Right. <laughs> I know I've mentioned this previously when talking to a lot of people about Dracula. I've always said the Dracula you know now is actually a lot of it is Dan Curtis's Dracula because Dan made the decision to insert the Barnabas love story into the Dracula mythos in order to, you know, make this a more interesting film because Dan said, and I'd forgotten the, the DVD I have actually has an interview with him talking about this, where it's like, I always thought the reason Dracula went, went to England was kind of baloney. <laughs> never, never worked for me. I thought we needed a stronger thing. So I decided I'd, I'd steal from myself and I'd take the Barnabas love story and we'd put it in, in this Dracula story. And he did. And so we get the Dracula, the lost love reincarnated story from the Barnabas storyline in Dark Shadows. And since then, it seems like almost all the Draculas done since then have picked up that idea as if it were part of the original book, which it isn't. So, you know, that, uh, I'd say that's a big success for Dan Curtis and writer Richard Matheson to kind of create a part of Dracula that everyone now thinks is part of Dracula that really wasn't originally. Which could be a good thing or a bad thing, depending on what side of Twilight you come down on. Um <laughs> Well, yeah, I know. I mean, in some sense, you could probably blame Barnabas Collins for Twilight, and I, oh boy, that's that's a terrible thing. But. If, if, if you're a fan of Twilight, good on you. I'm glad the good books on. and movies are out there for you. But I've I've seen all the movies. I, I've seen one clip of one of the movies. I think Brent and I have talked about it before, and yep. I'm bringing it up again. It was the baseball scene. Ugh. Anyway, <laughs> my favorite part of the movies turned out to be something that was not in the books, and actually, an, an extended quote unquote dream sequence. It was like, oh, this is awesome. I Finally, we're getting to see the kind of stuff I watch. Oh, it's all a dream. <laughs> so we have officially talked about Twilight longer than we ever have on Monster Kid Radio. And I think yep, uh, sorry about that. that's okay. I, I brought it up first. It's not Barnabas's fault. And no. it's not the fault of Curtis's Dracula. You know, the, the love story, the love element. I could see how some of that could be inferred in 
previous versions of the story, but it's very blatant, very here and forever became part of the mythos. Right. And I think this may have also been one of the first times that the blatant connection between Dracula and Vlad Tepes came up. I was going to mention that too, because I'm, I'm pretty sure that this is the first time that was explored anyway. Now someone will write in and tell me, no, that's wrong. You know, and I'm, if there is more information about this, let me know, listeners, because I'm fascinated to know that too. My memory of, of growing up at the time is that this movie came out right around the same time as Raymond McNally's In Search of, I think it was called In Search of Historic Dracula, which had a very scary picture of Nosferatu on the cover. I didn't know what that was as a kid. I thought, oh my God, that's a real vampire. Because if we've all seen Max Schreck, we know how convincing and and scary that is. Anyway, the book was about the historical inspiration for Dracula and connected the historical Dracula, Son of the Dragon, with Bram Stoker's Son of the Dragon. And, and, you know, though we never can know, I guess, because I don't think Stoker wrote about this, but the the author, which I'm pretty sure is Raymond McNally, wrote a, a very convincing case that clearly... Stoker's Dracula had been inspired by this real uh, Prince of Wallachia. And mm-hmm. here it is. It's in this film. And again, that's something almost every version of Dracula that I can think of since then has just assumed that to be true. And I think we can trace that to this film and to the McNally book that came out right around the same time. The uh, book came out in 1972. Uh, Raymond McNally is one of the authors credited, uh, as is Radu Florescu, uh, is the other co-author on it. Uh, it's In Search of Dracula, The History of Dracula and Vampires. And I'll make sure there's a link in the show notes for you to buy your own copy if you yeah, want. Yeah, cool. It's still in print and might, who knows, maybe it's even available in ebook of some kind. You know, not on Amazon, uh, but... Over. Yeah, I mean, it might be out there some other way, or as an audiobook even. I know there was a film, uh, also called In Search of Dracula, that took a lot of material from the book, but I've never seen well, it. Well, and there have been a number of a number of other films and oh, television sure. shows that have, have done, in fact, all of the Searching for Dracula material done since. is I've, I've seen very little that is not directly related to that book, which I read, you know, I think I may have gotten for a Christmas gift around 1972 and, and read before Dracula came out here. And I'm sure that Dan and Richard probably saw that too. Uh, Leonard Nimoy went looking for him. I mean, they did an episode of In Search Of. So, you know, now we're just waiting for Zach Quinto to do one. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Since he's following Nimoy's footsteps so closely. (laughs) Anyway, that all said, I didn't feel like it was heavy-handed the way, say, like Coppola's Bram Stoker's Dracula was in making the connection. Right. Or Dracula, Dracula Unbound? Dracula... Untold? Untold, that's it. Um, Dark Universe Take One? Yeah. Yeah. Um. (laughs) Which is like, he's definitely this historical guy, and here's how he became a vampire. Well, and I've seen this, that explored in other things as well. There is a USA TV movie, I think it might have been called Dracula the Dark Prince, where they did the same thing. And I actually really liked that low-budget telling, because it really kind of cast Dracula in a Robin Hood kind of role. Mm-hmm. Which I, and really kind of told the story from that point of view. Peter yeah, Weller was I don't in the think movie I've watched it. So I, I really I dug it when I watched it. It may not hold up. Right. I haven't watched it in forever, but I, I liked it at the time. Um I feel like it gets kind of you get hit over the head with it uh, a lot uh, with some of these other versions. But in this one, it's there. There's a painting on the wall. There's a little bit at the very end. But that's it. And that's all we really need. Because yeah. that's not what this story is about. Nope. It just happens to be there. You know, if you can look at the, the things that uh, Dan and, and Richard 
to use just their first names added to this, those seem to be the two things that they added to the mythos that a lot of people have picked up since the, the lost love story and the idea that this guy was actually the historical figure of Vlad Tepes. Mm-hmm. It's, and that's interesting to me, you know, as, as someone that watches this kind of stuff and someone that follows it. It's like, okay, is anyone actually going to go back to the Stoker novel for the source material or is everyone just building on the previous movies and the, previous films well that's the thing about legends and myths right i mean once something falls into the public domain or even before that you start getting different versions of these stories additions subtractions there were a couple of versions of dracula that as a novel that were moved over to other countries and then translated for that country's native language but the translator changed the story (laughs) and and it's fascinating to look at even that happening and i think to me, that kind of speaks to the strength of the core of the story. Right. If you can start doing these things to it, whether you like it or right. not, whether you like, you know, Marvel making Captain America a Hydra agent or something at some point. I mean, it really kind of speaks to, you know, the, the core of the character and the story. Right. And, and Dracula is a great story. It's a timeless story. And, uh, mm-hmm. you know, I, I wish that Stoker had written other things as good as that. I've, you know, I recently finished, I love the movie Lair of the White Worm and I finished that. And the, the novel is, there's so little of the movie in the novel and what there is is kind of jingoistic and racist and stuff. It's just, okay, I'm going to stick with Dracula. I think. <laughs> well, even something like Dracula's guest, which is kind of sort of maybe um, excise chapter from Dracula itself mm-hmm. doesn't hold up the same right. way. Yeah. But Dracula you know, does which is too bad. Dracula is a really good, you know, Dracula and Frankenstein. They're very solid novels on which to build uh, an entire monster fandom on. They just are. The reason we think about Dracula when we think about the original vampire instead of Varney, you know, is, right. is, is pretty evident. Anyway, this movie, this story, uh, Jack Palance's Dracula does a really good job. I think looking at it now, I'm amazed that he didn't do more because I, I could see him doing more Dracula right. stuff. I don't think he wanted to. Right, yeah. That's a, uh, there was a short interview with him that I watched last night, too, that we were just like, people offered me more Dracula, but I didn't want to do it. <laughs> I found it too disturbing, maybe a little too close to home. <laughs> <laughs> Believe it or not. Or not. Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but he's very good. He's very good. He's certain, he could have done it many more times, potentially. Because mm-hmm. he's, mm-hmm. like, you know, he's got a lot of that same Christopher Lee vibe. Maybe without yeah. without a little of the animal magnetism, but it's that same kind of power and radiance. I mean, Dan Curtis said Jack Palance is someone that really he was strong enough that he really could pick up a person up off the ground with just one hand. He could lift a man into the air just by grabbing him and picking him up. I saw him do a one arm push up at the Oscars. Yeah. I know he could do no it. No kidding. He <laughs> was what like seventy or something when he was doing that. It's like yeah, boy, I should be able. I should be that fit now. <laughs> <laughs> Anyway, but he—he's magnetic. He's charismatic. Yep. He is threatening, but he's a good host at the beginning. And you know, when the, when he starts locking him in the uh, Harker in the room behind him, I mean, there's a sudden shift of, oh, right. He's not just a host. He's my captor, and captor. just it's it's amazing. The kind of genial host and the kind of budding monster in those early scenes is really, really interesting. And I obviously a lot of that is Palance's work doing a good job showing the demon within the man or the, mm-hmm. the monster, the vampire within the shell of the man. So that's really kind of an interesting thing. The, the cast is really very good. 
the whole cast. We've got uh, Simon Ward as Arthur, who's kind of ends up being the main protagonist, and people know him from the Three Musketeers and numerous other things. And Nigel Davenport as Van Helsing is is a very good Van Helsing, I think. Um, you know, he's not going to match Peter Cushing, but but who does? And then we have the, some kind of interesting, you know, just little sub-characters. The Brides of Dracula, two of the three brides are fairly well-known actresses. You may have seen in, oh, say, Virginia Weatherall was in Doctor Who, and Sarah Douglas was uh, Ursa in the second Superman movie, among other roles. Well, in the first, but yeah. yeah. Um, this may have been her first big role, yeah, wasn't it? it or her first you know, appearance? I didn't, yeah, I didn't hear pretty that darn close. far down IMGB, just to be sure, but it's kind of like... Uh, I guess she did a little bit. And she's great. I mean, I, I've always liked Sarah Douglas. Yeah, no, she's terrific. It's an actress I really enjoy. It's always fun seeing people kind of show up at the beginning of their careers in films that, with, that you're watching for, you know, Jack Palance was kind of in the middle of his career at this point. It's always interesting to see newcomers are like, oh, look, that's that's that one. That's that one. There's a little bit of that fun, too. And it, and it speaks, again, to um, quality casting on the part of Dan Curtis and his crew to put together a really good cast. This was a TV movie, so it didn't have all the money in the world. And it didn't have all the time in the world. But they managed to put together uh, a really good a movie that's good enough that it was released theatrically. In Europe, apparently. So, and I think that's good. You know, the only flaw I might pick with it is that sometimes it's a it's a little long. It's and that's kind of an interesting criticism because the the other Dan Curtis vampire movie I think of is is House of Dark Shadows, and the criticism people have with that one is that it moves too fast. It's kind of an interesting contrast there too. But overall, I really like this film. It's really it's just good entry in the Dracula series. It would have been great if Palance had decided that Dracula did not haunt his soul and he could maybe play him again. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, I'm grateful for what we have, and I'm grateful for the way sure. it ties in with the uh, with reality and the stuff it brought to the mythos. Okay, so I love Jack Palance, and I love the images of the brides when they just show up when Harker turns around in a room and he thought he was alone and then there are the brides there and then they just rush him and that's a great scene but my favorite shot in this whole thing has nothing to do with Dracula has nothing to do with the brides it's when the boat is drifting in and the dead man is lashed to the wheel and he's got a cross on his hands that's my favorite shot of this whole thing I love that shot I love it and I when I was watching it last night that was one of the things I thought this is smart, low-budget filmmaking because it you never actually see the boat in the water because clearly they didn't have a boat. <laughs> they couldn't put it in the water. And you don't actually see all of the boat. You see enough of the boat in the foreground that you're convinced it's a boat. But really, it's a guy lashed to a wheel with a cross on his hand, a bunch of billowing sails and some suggestions of boat railing and fallen masts and that kind of stuff. So you know this is a boat that is run aground because in the background there is the the seashore with the waves washing up. And the long pan down the boat as it reveals more and more and eventually you get the dead man in the foreground and you get Dracula standing on the shore in the background. It's it's, it's a brilliant shot, and it's a brilliant use of having no budget, too, because they didn't have to build a whole boat. No, 
but they built enough stuff to suggest a boat. Right, and you didn't even have to deal with the whole boat sequence, which is something that, I mean, we get all the way back in the very first time this film, this story was adapted for film with Nosferatu. You don't have any of the boat stuff right. in this film, which is fine. You don't need it. Right. It's, it's, again, like you said, very smart filmmaking, storytelling on a budget, right. knowing what they could do, knowing what their strengths were, how much money they had, what they could pull off, what they couldn't pull off. And I think it works even better. I Yeah, it might be fun to see Jack Palance go through and kill a bunch of people on a boat. Right. Sure. Neat. But just there's a, a spooky element to the boat just drifting in super quiet. And the guy holding the cross as he's lashed to the wheel. It's just brilliant. Yeah, no, it is. It's, it's, it's a great shot. And there are a lot of really interesting shots. There are a lot of shots that go from kind of a Dutch angle of a setup. Dutch angle meaning a tilted camera where you get a setup for the scene with a, you know, uh, the castle or something like that. And then the Dutch angle will gradually straighten and then pan across as characters enter and move across the scene. A lot of interesting kind of just camera work and filmmaking work in terms of that mm-hmm. kind of stuff. But the, the boat scene, when I was, when I was watching, it was like, Oh, this is good. <laughs> this mm-hmm. is smart. This is, this is how you deal with this when you don't have enough money for a huge water tank and a miniature and all of that kind of stuff. This is, it gets across the entire story of Dracula aboard the boat without actually having to film any of the really expensive stuff of Dracula right. aboard the boat. And that's that's genius. Just pure filmmaking genius there. You know, to go toward the low budgetness part of it again, I think because of the low budget, because of the restrictions they had, and because they're on television, they can't do a lot of gore. They can't do a lot of, I mean, there is some blood, but they can't do a lot. Right. And so when they do finally dispatch Dracula at the end after pulling the Peter Cushing move of pulling the drapes down and showing the sunlight in the room, when they finally stake him and they drive the stake through him, sure, you see it going through the front real briefly, but the most effective shot of it is when you see it pop out the back because Dracula's up against a table that's been upended and you see the point of it come out through the back of the table. Man, that shot, that that is a definitive vampire staking right there, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> that's how you do it. And it's a shocking scene too because as you say, that they haven't entirely shied away from, from any blood showing or any bloodletting. You have but, some. But they've been a lot more discreet than you would be in say a hammer film from a similar time period mm-hmm. because this was a TV movie. This was going to be shown probably on ABC. If I remember right in the, in the middle of the week, like a Tuesday or Wednesday night time slot, you know, in front of a mass market audience. And so they, it was like very clear. They very carefully picked, okay, we need a little blood here. We need a little blood here, but we're going to save the really big hit for the climax of this, which as he said, is, is clearly influenced by uh, horror of Dracula. Uh, and that's and one of the, the, there are a few changes in this. There's changes about what happens with Jonathan, but there's also stuff that from the book that doesn't make it into a lot of other versions that this version does, which is really interesting. But the climax of the original novel takes place out on the road in the wilderness to Dracula's castle. And all it's got all, you know, involves like half a dozen car, guys and Cossacks and Mina and the whole crew. And this is obviously a much more television oriented. What, what can we film that we have the budget for that's still going to look good? Well, the, the Lee Cushing, the climax of that first film that worked pretty well. Let's see if we can recreate that and put a twist on it and then hit them with that 
we can get away with one really strong scene for the censors. <laughs> Let's save it for the end. Use it there. Good choice, Dan. I would love to go back and read some of the original screenplays that Dan Curtis was involved with. Yeah. You know, not that he was the writer, but I mean, just to kind of see what he had to work with uh, when given. Well, Richard yeah. Matheson was a writer on a oh, lot sure, of them. sure. So, and you know, we know how brilliant he was. I mean, he was one of the great television screenwriters of all time, especially for Monster Kids. Because I'm sure there was stuff they wanted to do that they just didn't have the money for. You know, that they didn't have the time, they didn't have the money. But what they had, they managed to put an amazing amount of quality up on the screen. Oh, I agree. 100%, man. I'm not going to argue with you there. <laughs> There's a lot to love here. And, and I'm glad that I've given this uh, another rewatch uh, from when I watched it when I was much younger and dumber and didn't really get it and enjoy it for what it was. And I don't know if it was because, and this isn't any fault on her because I love Elvira, but this isn't any fault on her, like doing the cut-ins and, and talking about the movie or kind of making fun of Jack Nicholas or Jack Nicholas, Jack Palance's, uh, <sighs> Tim, Tim, yeah, Tim seemed to breathe heavy <laughs> like that. I just didn't get it then. And, and now I get it and I get it in, in, <laughs> in spades, man. Right, you know, as you get older, the things you realize that you didn't appreciate when you were younger. You know, I appreciate Dark Shadows in a very different way mm -hmm. now than I did when I was first seeing it. But I still appreciate the things I appreciated then, but there's a whole other level to it now. And this is certainly one of those movies that you, you see it at the wrong time. You know, you're not going to get it. The first time you see a Val Luton film and you're expecting a monster movie, it's like, wait a minute, why are there no people actually turning into cats? Yeah, you sound like <laughs> one of the producers of the film that he was working for. Um, right, the yeah, studio. And, and as you grow up, you're like, oh my God, this is so much better than it right. would have been if they'd gone with a cat woman makeup. How do you think Nigel Davenport does as Van Helsing compared to who we associate with Van Helsing normally, whether it's Van Sloan, Peter Cushing, Hugh I, Jackman? I think he's good. <laughs> Hugh Jackman. <laughs> I think I like him better than Hugh Jackman. Think. I think he's good. I think in some ways that part may be a little underwritten. I think maybe at times they kind of just assume you know who these characters are. I, I was noticing that as I was watching it. They talk about Van Helsing coming to help them, but once he arrives, they never actually say his name. And I'm always a little, a little, you know, you don't want to name drop people all the time in a script, but I think there was some kind of an assumption that people watching this would have some kind of a basic understanding of, of who Van Helsing was and what his role was. So I think in some ways they may have underplayed it, a little bit. You know, I could have seen him doing more stuff as Van Helsing. I definitely could have. You know, I mean, if you're going to ask me to choose, I'm going to choose Peter Cushing all sure. the time. Um, but I think, you know, you could have done a, a Van Helsing hunts vampires thing with this guy, uh, with Davenport playing Van Helsing. I don't know. What do you think? It's definitely a different take. I feel like in the first Hammer Dracula film, Peter Cushing still has a little bit of vulnerability to him. He still seems like he's kind of figuring some things out in terms of how vampires work. Yeah, he's an expert, but he's still open to learning more. Uh, and the Von Sloan character is already there. You know, he's like, I know everything. I feel like something with Davenport, he, he has a different vibe than either one of them. He, he seems to know it all. He knows what, and he's the first one to drop the word Nosferatu, which I love. Right. Like, you know what a Nosferatu is? I was like, well, okay, don't show off, but tell me, you know? <laughs> so, so there's a little bit of a more instructor-like role that I, I assign him that I don't get from the other ones. I don't know. I, I, I like him. I think maybe you've hit that in a, in a way. I think in some ways he's actually more professorial. 
than either of the other two that we generally associate with Van Helsing. I might be surprised to see Peter Cushing teaching a class. This guy almost seems like, yeah, he's the guy that teaches class. So he knows all this stuff, but he's not very flashy about it. He's not the early vigorous Van Helsing that Peter Cushing played, or he's and he's not the kind of stayed and ossified Van Helsing that Edward Van Sloan plays. So I think he's kind of in the middle ground between the two of them. And I think they could have maybe given him more to do, but I think they're, they were also aware that they were going to keep him paired with Simon Ward, and the two of them basically act as a duo throughout the thing. So you had to have something for one to do, something for the other to do. And they didn't want uh, Van Helsing to kind of it, to become Van Helsing's film. Because while these two guys are running around as heroes, this is also Dracula's film. This is Polanski's film. And you don't want to show him up too much. And you don't want to make the supporting characters, these supporting characters, as interesting or as important as Polanski's Dracula. So, like I said, I think in some ways he's maybe a little underwritten. But I think he does a really good job with it. I'd be happy to see him do it again, unfortunately like a lot of the cast members here, he's no longer with us. I agree uh, with all of that. I think that this film you're going to want to watch for Dracula in particular, because he's just fantastic. But yep. you, the, the rest of the cast around them are also perfectly serviceable, and but they never yep. really try to take away from it. There's not a, right. a competition. Whereas I feel like something like with, say, like Bram Stoker's Dracula, whether it was intentional or not, Every time a character turns up on screen, especially Van Helsing, you feel like they're kind of fighting to chew the scenery. They're fighting for screen time. Right. There's, there's an adversarial kind of feel to the whole thing. And maybe that was intentional. Maybe Coppola wanted right. that. But I don't feel like that happens here. And I think that's a good thing in a lot of ways. Oh, yeah. It kind of keeps the focus of the movie where, where it belongs and where Matheson and, and Dan Curtis wanted it, which is focus on Dracula and on what they were kind of bringing to it that was going to make Dracula unique for them, which again, obviously that worked so well, it's been copied Mm -hmm. many times since. Oh, over and over. Yeah. Listeners, if you've not seen the film, highly recommend it. It's available on disc. It's available on streaming services. You can watch it pretty easily now or track down the Elvira version of it. I'd like to watch that again, (laughs) just to kind of see, you know, what I think about it now. I was thinking it might, I don't know if it's out on Blu-ray, but it might be worth seeing on Blu-ray just to see if some of the darker scenes on the, the DVD have maybe lightened up. If you can see the wolves chasing the carriage at the beginning better and that kind of stuff. It also made me want to rewatch Dan Curtis's other TV movies, some of which I don't have available uh, in my library currently. So Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, I haven't seen right. for years and years and years. And that also has plants in it. Now, Curtis didn't direct that one, but he did produce. But it's his production, and I think it's got uh, Coburn music in it, including something that would later become Quentin's theme, if my trivia is correct in my brain, <laughs> which it may or may not be. That's off the top of my head, folks. I'm not looking this up online. <laughs> <laughs> but but Dracula, uh, the film by Curtis, is available on Blu-ray from MPI Home Video. Again, link in the show notes so you can buy your own copy from Amazon. As of this recording, and, and hopefully it'll stay this way, it's like 11 bucks. Oh, man. That's $11. I think it's totally worth 11 bucks. I may go and get that myself. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And, you know, Dan Curtis did so much for television. I mean, he he's the Dark Shadows guy. He's the Dracula guy. He's a Trilogy of Terror guy. But he's done he's so He's the Night Stalker guy. Yeah. No, I, oh, yeah. But he's done so much more. He's the Winter War guy. I mean, he did all this great TV for many, many years. Never got any recognition for it. 
finally he does the the wins award series and he wins all these prizes. <laughs> it was yeah. Like, like yeah way to go guy oh yeah <laughs> definitely i mean the winds of war was what a miniseries in what the early 80s yeah it's like two or three miniseries i think yeah. It's, yeah it's like a you know sprawling world war ii epic and i haven't seen it since it originally aired but it's very good and dan curtis he was he was a an original he was kind of an original in the in the mold of not exactly the same but in the kind of a maverick creator in the same way that uh marion c cooper was back in the early days of cinema and, and King Kong, Mary C. Cooper and Edgar Wallace and those guys, you know, th- these were guys that are kind of mavericks from outside the system that came in to do interesting work and see what they could do. And a, a lot of what we owe as monster kids for supernatural and monster pictures from the seventies on is all because of stuff Dan Curtis was doing mm-hmm. that inspired other people to do more, including me. Yeah. If you look at Dan and you were to say he's got a particular style, his style is less about I'm making monster movies. It's more about I'm telling a story that just happens to have monsters in it this time. Maybe yep. in a few years I'll do something about a gangster. Maybe in a few years I'll do something called The Winds of War. But you know, right now I'm doing this story and uh, it's got a vampire. Cool. Right. And, and I, well, it's, I it's interesting. That. He kind of has this, um, you know, not to go too Robert E. Howard on this, but he kind of, kind of <laughs> has a. Hey, it's my podcast, man. We go help Robert <laughs> E. Howard whenever I want. It's cool. <laughs> Dan Curtis, as a director, he has kind of a lean, muscular directing style. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I love and it. And there's your Howard reference. I love time. it. <laughs> I think that's deliberate. I think that a lot of ways those two guys would have really gotten along together. So. <laughs> I don't know if Howard would have had the patience to watch Dark Shadows, but no, I, I don't yeah, think he would have. No. But I think he would have liked the way Dan kind of attacks things in a in a very direct way, sure, and goes for the meat on the bone. True, so. true, and you get plenty of that in Dracula. Listeners, check it out. Check out Steve's books. Tell me about Frost Arrow. Frost Arrow is a modern gothic horror story. Well, it's set in the the end of the last century now, so the 1990s. Um, so historical fiction. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah well that's when i originally wrote it and i'm doing some like rewrites on it and re uh, and releasing it or re-releasing it depending on how you look at it because not a lot of people saw it the first time around it's basically kind of dark shadows meets stephen king or goosebumps for grown-ups depending upon uh what way you kind of intend to look at it it's a uh, very straightforward fun horror stories that I'm serializing on my site, and there are six books completed, and we'll see how many I get out on the site before I just release them all on, on uh, ebook or on print form. We'll see, but you can check out my site sdsullivan.com right now and get in on get in on the beginning of the new Frost Arrow stories. Right on. So we'll make sure there's a link to that as well. <laughs> there are ghosts, there are vampires, there are werewolves, there are demons. Lots of ghouls, lots of cool things coming up in Frost Arrow. Right on. Well, Steve, thanks for doing this. Really appreciate it. Oh, you're very welcome. Happy to do it again. Oh, yeah, definitely. Always happy to uh, talk Dan Curtis with somebody who loves the work as much as I do. Okay, you know what? I'm going to throw this in uh, after the fact because Steve just reminded me we did not play a round of the classic vibe. I'm going to blame Steve for that. <laughs> yeah, uh, he fault. didn't remind me. You know, it's, it's totally his job to keep me on point. <laughs> whatever yeah okay so for listeners who don't know the classic five it's a conversation starter or in this case a conversation ender Um (laughs) (laughs) we've talked many times before so i guess that's appropriate Yeah. yeah so the classic five i've got a deck of cards here 
each one of these cards has a this or that, yes or no style question about monster movies. Which one do you like better? What do you think about this or that? There are no wrong answers. Are you ready to play the classic five, Steve? Uh, as ready as I'll ever be, probably. All right, card number one. Oh, this comes from the Monster Bash deck. Who do you wish you could meet at Monster Bash? Ooh, uh... Catherine Lee Scott. <laughs> is that just because she's on your mind because we're doing all this Dan Curtis stuff? That's that's some of it. And because there are other people I could have met last time that I missed. But <laughs> I was like, why did I not meet Veronica Carlson? So if I can get there again, and we'll see, life may prevent me. Maybe I'll get to meet Veronica Carlson this year. But Catherine Lee Scott, I've never met in person. So she's right up near the top of my list of people that I really enjoy. And listeners, stay tuned because when I have Steve back to talk a little bit about Dark Shadows during our final episode of the year, he talks about how once Catherine Lee Scott called him. So at one point she had your phone number and maybe it's on her. Right. And Catherine Lee Scott, for those of you that don't know, played Maggie on Dark Shadows as well as many other roles in the series. Sure. All right. Card number two. Oh, from our hammer deck. What is your favorite Terrence Fisher hammer film? Oh God. I knew you were going to hit me with one of these director films <laughs> that I'm like, Oh God, which ones the Terrence Fisher direct, which ones the Terrence Fisher not direct. I'm going to say, Oh, I mean, horror of Dracula would be an easy one, right? Um, it would. He did the, but uh, he did the the second one, Dracula, Prince of Darkness. He directed that one too, right? I believe so. Yeah. If I remember right, <laughs> and that's one of my favorites ones. So I'm going to say Dracula, Prince of Darkness. Dracula, Prince of Darkness, King of the Vampires. For ten years, his mortal remains were cherished by his faithful servant, awaiting the opportunity and a victim to provide the life force for the reincarnation of Dracula. A strange premonition warns the guests at Castle Dracula that their host is ready to receive them. I must kill him. He is already dead. He is undead, Mr. Kent. He can be destroyed, but not killed. You don't need Charles. You know, I just taught a, a course on, on Hammer and Universal, and the directors of the Hammer films, are, as a result, are kind of scrambled up in my mind a little bit. So I had to, it's like, okay, yeah, no, he did most of the, most of the ones I love are ones he directed. And that's, that's one Dracula Prince of Darkness. Love it. Right, card number three, the Twilight Zone or the Outer Limits? Oh, I've heard you ask this question for other people many times. I have a very weird answer to this. In terms of being a great show, I'm going to say the Twilight Zone. In terms of rewatchability, and this may actually be changing now, uh, up until maybe the last time they played it on Comet TV, I would have said 
the outer limits because I generally there's some of those shows I really really enjoy, but since they were playing the outer limits on Comet until fairly recently or on MeTV or boy maybe both, part of me has realized like. Gosh, there just aren't that many of those. <laughs> <laughs> so I guess uh, I'm going to switch. I'm going to say, yeah, I would have said that, but I, I think I'm switching to the Twilight Zone now. And how can you go wrong with Rod Serling, who I was lucky enough to meet when I was a, a youngster, too. So Rod Serling, Twilight Zone. Right on. All right, card number four. <laughs> this is from the upcoming core deck number two. The Giant Claw or Reptilicus? Oh, man. Uh, I love both those films. <laughs> and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say Reptilicus because I like the monster better in Reptilicus. And I know there are people out there going, what? It's a piece of skin, like leather. From all corners of the earth, they gather to study the mystifying frozen fossil. A reptilian tail that grows into a giant of terror. It's alive! It's loose! You have been invited here to see for yourselves one of the most amazing events in the annals of scientific history. Reptilicus, a monstrous, massive beast whose astounding appearance causes panic. Reptilicus approaching the city. Repeat, Reptilicus approaching the city. This is Grayson. All units. Fire at will. Reptilicus, an annihilating mastodon, immune to all known weapons of warfare, creating chaos such as mankind has never before known. I just have to look at the monster designs side by side, all other things being equal. And I do think, in many ways, The Giant Claw is a better film. So if we're talking about film, uh, it's The Giant Claw. But if we're talking about just the monster, I'm going with Reptilicus. Fair enough. And final card, back to the Monster Bash deck. What two classic science fiction movies would make the perfect double feature? Uh, The War of the Worlds and Time Machine. Time Machine? Yeah. Okay. I, I, you know, they're both H.G. Wells, obviously, and I love those films. And they're amazing. And it may even be that I've seen them together on the big screen back in the movie uh, Revival House days. But there's like a core of science fiction, classic science fiction films that I, that I just love, love, love to pieces. And those two are right near the top of my list, along with the James Mason version of Journey to the Center of the Earth. And of course, the James Mason version of uh, 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. Um, but those two, that, that's a great double feature. Any day of the week. Sounds good. Okay. Well, that was the Classic Five, Steve. I guess a surprise. I'm going to let you... Uh uh, retroactively be on Monster Kid Radio earlier in this episode. I don't know. <laughs> awesome. <laughs> Something like Maybe that. You'll me Maybe you'll invite me back as my prize. That'll uh, be there. I'll, I'll consider it. <laughs> <laughs> All right, man. Thanks, Steve. <laughs>
So I recorded that this past weekend. I'm recording this segment, this section, Wednesday night. So I don't remember, but I'm pretty sure Steve probably mentioned his website. But in case he didn't, sdsullivan.com is where you're going to want to go to check out everything he's got going on. I made sure that I dropped a promo in this episode for Cushing Horrors as well, so you can go learn all about that too. Steve, thanks for being part of the show. And like I said, he will be coming back on at the end of the month for a whole bunch of conversation about Dark Shadows. And I'll talk about that here in a second. Again, thank you, Steve. Are you ready? Are you ready to descend? To descend with Pat Boone, James Mason, Arlene Dahl, and Gertrude the Duck, where nothing is like anything you have ever seen. Come along on the most fantastic adventure Jules Verne ever created. Journey to the center of the earth. Well, Cindy, this is the last box. Supermates has now officially moved into Fire and Water Podcast Headquarters. Where do you want this Starman short box? Put it over by the classic monster DVDs. Be careful. Don't crush my superpowers Batmobile. Calm down, Christopher. Hey, you put the Star Trek DVDs on top of my comic action Wonder Woman Invisible Plane! Oh! Jeez! Well, uh, now we can tell everyone that Supermates can be found exclusively at fireandwaterpodcast.com. Now, if they subscribe via iTunes, they shouldn't notice a change, right? Right. Or if they listen through the main Fire and Water Network feed. No change. They can just find the show's home, show notes, etc. here at fireandwaterpodcast.com. Well, I'm going to go take a dip in the Aquaman-sized swimming pool Rob has, but I am not putting on that mirror costume. It smells fishy. Oh, come on. It'll be fun. Hey, hey, don't trip over that life-size shag standy. thing is disturbingly real. Supermates, the husband and wife geek cast, now a proud member of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. Find us on iTunes or at fireandwaterpodcast.com. In January of 1974, the American Broadcasting Company brought forth on this continent a new sitcom, conceived by Derry Marshall and dedicated to the proposition that the 1950s were awesome. That sitcom was, of course, Happy Days. It ran for 10 years and 255 episodes, casting a long shadow across American popular culture. Week after week, millions thrilled to the adventures of Richie, Fonzie, Joni, Potsy, Ralph Mouth, and the whole gang from Milwaukee. Hello, friends. I'm Joe, and I'm half of the broadcasting team behind These Days Are Ours, a podcast dedicated to all things Happy Days. Together with my co-host Emily, we'll be exploring the series episode by episode, breaking down the themes and telling you what it all means. You can join us on this journey by visiting thesedaysareours.libson.com. Just like the original Happy Days, we'll have new episodes every Tuesday. Be there or be square. You know, it's a shorter episode than normal this week. It's just a lot of stuff going on in our life here at Monster Kid Radio Central. You might have just heard Wednesday. She says hello. She's the only co-host that I have this week, though. Brenda is not going to be here this time around. We do have one email. We're going to save it for next time. She had a doctor's appointment. I had a doctor's appointment. We had to go buy a mattress. Anyway, we had a lot of adulting that we had to do today really kind of wore us out. So yeah, we're going to kind of keep things short and sweet, tight and compact here on this episode 
of MKR. I want to refer you to monsterkidradio.net where you can learn everything you need to know about the podcast between episodes where you can find our Facebook page, our Twitter links, our Facebook group, our contact information like monsterkidradio at gmail.com or a voicemail line 503-479-5657. That's 503-479-5MKR. If you have any comments on Dracula, on anything Dan Curtis related or anything that we've talked about here on the show or anything that you've got going on Monster Kid related, call in, let us know what it is and I'll share it with the rest of the listeners. I mentioned before that Steve's going to be part of our big Dark Shadows blowout episode. I don't think I'm going to be able to pull off a round table episode devoted to Dark Shadows. So instead, what I've been doing is grabbing a few people and recording with them for a short period of time and just asking them about Dark Shadows. And I'm going to make that into one giant episode. And coincidentally, it'll probably be episode 400. So 400 will be our big Dark Shadows event, I guess. So far, I've got Steve, I've got Joshua Kennedy, and I've got Jeff Owens, who's going to be the guy on the show next week. Jeff Owens is the man from the Classic Horrors Club and one of my favorite podcasters. One of my favorite people. Jeff is the man. He and I are going to be talking about another Dan Curtis production, and we can't get too far away from Dark Shadows. So we're going to see how the vampires do it when we talk about House of Dark Shadows. It could be true, you know. There could actually be a man named Barnabas Collins, and he could actually be a real Vampire. House of Dark Shadows from MGM. See how the vampires do it. Rated GP, all ages, parental guidance. So that's what you can look forward to next week, as well as feedback with Brenda. I'm sure Kenny's working on a new Famous Monsters of Filmland segment for House of Dark Shadows. That's going to be a lot of fun. But you know what? If you want a little bit of Monster Kid Radio goodness, just a touch before next week's episode pop over to the website at monsterkidradio.net. There is a place for you to subscribe to the Monster Kid Radio e-newsletter. I think I still have it called the Monster Kid Radio Gazette. I'm probably going to change the name, but that's our email list. And if you put your email address in there, you'll be sure to get your copy of the Monster Kid Radio 2018 Holiday Gift guide. I'm working on that. And my goal is to have that done by the end of this upcoming weekend. I'm going to send it out to the email list first. And then a few days after that, I'm going to make it available on the website. So if you want to get your hands on a free PDF copy, free PDF, yeah, free PDF copy of the gift guide with some really cool cover art from my man, Chris Franklin over at the Supermates podcast, to get it over the weekend, subscribe to the email list. Otherwise, just keep paying attention to monsterkidradio.net because I'm going to put it there eventually as well. And of course, I'll mention it on Facebook and Twitter and all that other stuff. Anyway, that brings us to the end of the show. Again, thank you for listening and being part of the Monster Kid Radio audience, for sharing the Facebook posts and retweeting tweets and just sharing the love. The Monster Kid community is so strong online, and I am so proud to be part of that community. And, well... Just you guys and gals make it worth it. So thank you. Also, big thanks to the surf band Los Ultraman, which you can find at losultraman.bandcamp.com. Check out their new EP release, which is made up of two songs, Kebab of Love and King Masako. Now, Kebab of Love is the song that we're playing this week. Check it out. You can buy the song for a buck. Head over there and let them know that Monster Kid Radio sent you. My name is Derek M. Cook. 
Oh, hey, almost forgot all the copyrighted stuff. Monster Kid Radio is a registered service market of Monster Kid Radio, LLC. All original content of Monster Kid Radio by Monster Kid Radio, LLC is licensed under a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives, 3.0, unported license. Okay, now that's the end. Again, my name is Sarah Kim Cook. Thank you for listening. I'll talk to everybody next week. Ciao.